Now we're going to continue worshiping the Lord this morning as we continue in the worship of the study of his word. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, and we will look this morning at the Lord's letter to the church of Thyatira, Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29. Title of the message is, When It's Not Enough to Be a Loving Church. The word of God reads, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first, but. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my words until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. As when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Our Father, we ask now that by your grace, you would impart to me the ability and the anointing to preach your word by the power of the Holy Spirit to declare this truth with authority that comes from on high and to prepare the hearts of your people this morning, their their minds, Lord, that they would be cleared that they have eyes to see and ears to hear the glorious truth before us this morning as both an encouragement and a warning for those of us who profess the name of Jesus Christ and yet live in a fallen world among lost people. How we are to bear witness of the light of Jesus Christ, to remain steadfast and immovable. For those who have entered in this morning who do not have a true saving relationship with you, I pray that today would be the day that you grant them repentance, that you grant them the grace to turn and to believe. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I've never met a woman. (laughs) I've never met a girl by the name of Jezebel. It's the most notorious name in all of the Old Testament. She was the wife of King Ahab. King Ahab made quite a reputation for himself in that he exceeded the evil of all who came before him. If you want to listen to the words of 1 Kings chapter 16 beginning in verse 29, or you can turn there if you like, which reads, In the 38th year of Esau, of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if, it, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Bethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made Asherah, which is a wooden image to a female deity. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Who's right? Over and above the evil that he racked up for himself, he marries Jezebel the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidon, provoking the Lord to anger. And not only does he marry Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the priest king of Sidon, she's allowed to bring her gods with her. And as a result, Ahab sets up altars to Baal. False god. And then Jezebel becomes the evil power behind Ahab's throne, the puppeteer behind the scenes, if you will, the she-devil who wore the pants in the family. That's trouble. It led to Israel's idolatry. The crime of all crimes, idolatry. The early church father, Tertullian, said, quote, that the principal crime of the human race, the highest guilt charged upon the world, the whole procuring cause of judgment is idolatry, end quote. Anytime the church of Jesus Christ attempts to synchronize with modernity, they run the risk of falling into idolatry and banqueting with the devil himself. Whenever the church wants to please culture, whenever the church tries to reflect and be like the culture for sake of entertainment, they fall prey to dining with the devil. Peter Berger, a renowned analyst of modernity, said it well when he wrote this, quote, he who sups with the devil had better have a long spoon. The devilry of modernity has its own magic. The believer who sups with it, modernity that is, will find his spoon getting shorter and shorter until that last supper in which he is left alone at the table with no spoon at all and with an empty plate. The devil, one may guess, will by then have gone away to more interesting company, end quote. Um, that is a citation from Oz Guinness's book, Dining with the Devil, his 1993 analysis of the megachurch movement and its flirtation with modernity. He hit the nail on the head, by the way. Its willingness to enfold culture, cultural ideals and practices within the church. Jezebel, in this time, the Old Testament, was the basis for the banqueting table that was laid out for the Israelites to dine with the devil, so to speak. But then the Lord brings war against those false gods, and he sends to the front line the prophet Elijah. You remember the story? Facing 850 priests of Baal and Ashtoreth, where they began to perform all kinds of self-mutilating acts to call upon their gods, but all to no avail, because they don't exist. Elijah calls on Yahweh, the one true God, and in the end he calls down fire from heaven, and then he slays with the sword all 850 priests. Dead. Judgment. Years later, we read of Jezebel's demise in 2 Kings chapter 9, which reads, When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace with you, Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who's on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked doubt at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. And then he went in and ate and drank. And he said, See now, 
to this cursed woman and bury her, for she's a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite in the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. To be eaten by dogs was the height of humiliation in this day. She's left laying there as an unidentifiable corpse. This, beloved, is the judgment of God. The name Jezebel then becomes synonymous for the practice of harmonizing worship of the one true God along with the use of idols and images and the practices or ideals of culture. Mixing allegiance of the one true almighty God along with allegiance to false gods and false ideals, contrary to God. Who then would name their daughter Jezebel? For she is a symbol of iniquity. But she's the central story of Israel with regards to theological syncretism. To the covenant children of God, she's a reminder that mixed allegiance equals death. And she's not mentioned again in Scripture until Revelation chapter 2. And in your outline, that leads us to the place. She's mentioned to the church that exists in Thyatira, where the Lord Jesus warns against the spirit of Jezebel. Not much is written about Thyatira. There was a military outpost there, and it was located in a valley. It was really used to forestall attack against Pergamum, capital city of Asia Minor. It was not known for its intellect or its universities, did not have a reputation for the arts, but was a small industrial center between Pergamum and Laodicea, an obscure, an obscure blue-collar town. It's the kind of place where men went to work with their lunchboxes. So this, the least important city, at least politically or financially, is the church that receives the Lord's longest letter. Remember, it's not the city to which these letters are written, but the churches within these cities. And as always, whatever the relative size of influence of the city, the church is far more important in the eyes of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about America, beloved. It's about the church in America that he's concerned with. Did you know that? It's his church that he's concerned with. His church that they preach the truth. That they don't compromise the truth from the pulpit. That they don't, as pastors, lead their people to dine with the devil. But Thyatira, the town, was noted for its commerce. For its manufacturing and industrial abilities. Therefore, the town was known for its trade guilds, the local unions, if you will. And the city specialized in numerous trades, including bronze workers, weavers, tanners of hide. They were also known for their cobblers, potters, bakers, garment makers, and dyers of fabric. So Thyatira was dominated, beloved, by the trade guild that that was dedicated to pagan gods and goddesses. In Acts 16.14, we're reminded of Lydia, who was a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira. It was near impossible to make a living in Thyatira without being a card-carrying member of the trade guild. A union cardholder. And we're going to see that the influence of economic life actually had a corrupting effect on the church and their spiritual life. In Thyatira. 
So economic prosperity cannot but have an effect on the spiritual life of any church, be it the first century or the 21st century. Now, that's the place. Notice the identity of the one speaking, verse 18. And to the church, the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Notice his absolute deity here, the Son of God. An explicit claim of deity are his penetrating eyes. Having eyes like a flame of fire. This is describing Jesus back in chapter 1, verse 14, when John saw the vision of Jesus in his glory. This takes us back to Daniel chapter 10, verse 6, that reads, His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches. The Lord of glory. This is a reminder of the omniscience of Jesus Christ, the all-knowingness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who sees all, who searches all, and who knows all. Nothing is hidden from his sight, beloved. He sees with eyes of perfect knowledge and judgment. And he's the one who has sole authority over his church. He's the one walking among the lampstands. He's walking among the churches and he is examining them. And he says in essence here, your failure as my church to discern is contrasted with my having eyes like a flame of fire. Eyes that search and penetrate. Verse 23, notice he's the one who searches the mind and the heart. Fiery eyes. Fire always represents judgment. Fire consumes everything that it touches. And everything here is exposed by his holy intelligence. Notice he's also portrayed as having feet like burnished bronze. Gleaming, sparkling, glistening bronze. This is imagery that harkens back to Ezekiel chapter 1 where the messengers of God had feet like burnished bronze, reflecting the glory, the majesty, and the holiness of God. So this image represents a purging effect. This is the God's purging judgment upon his church, the church of Thyatira. And the people in Thyatira would certainly have been familiar with the idea of burnished bronze, because there were many metal workers that dwelt in that city. This is something they could relate to. So here then we see a picture of Christ, the good shepherd, beloved, no doubt, who is also holy judge. He's the holy judge. Now as sinners saved by grace, praise the Lord, we've been judged once and for all and forever at the cross, amen? Never to be judged for our sin. Nevertheless, he judges the mind and the heart and the motives and the intentions of his people that he did bear the wrath for. Because we've been saved. Jesus knows the temptation of those in Thyatira. He understands their trials and their trouble, and he provides this evaluation. And this evaluation, beloved, serves as a wake-up call to these people who are flirting with the world within the church. But nevertheless, he begins, notice, with commendation. Commendation. This is a good model for us as believers. You have to, as Christians, reprove and correct one another, amen? That's what we're called to do. And we do that in love. A good model is what the Lord does with these seven churches. He builds them up first. Hey, you know what? You've got this going and this going and this going, and you look good here, and you're shining over here. Keep it up. Amen? But I have this against you. And then he lays it out. Only two of the seven churches receive no reproof. One of them receives no admonition, no positive commendation. But here he begins with commendation. Notice, verse 19. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. 
So here now are the words of the Son of God, giving to each according to their works. Notice that the church in Thyatira is not marked out by passivity, lethargy, laziness, hesitation. They are not sitting idle on their hands in the pews, beloved. This is a blue-collar church. These are people who know how to get things done for the glory of God. Notice there's four essential qualities of works that are singled out by the Lord. You have love, you have faith, you have service, and perseverance. This is what we want. We want love, we want faith, service, and perseverance. There, couldn't be, there could hardly be a greater commendation than that alone. Great characteristics of a church. Three of them, faith, hope, and love, are highlighted by the Apostle Paul as constituting the very essence of spiritual maturity in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Characterized by their love, characterized by their faith. Beloved, this is Christianity in action. These are those who profess Christ living Christ out among one another. But not only that, they were increasing in virtue. This is true growth, true maturity in Christ. You know, we're meant to grow. We're meant to mature. Saved by grace, little babes, and we grow over time. We want to move from milk to meat, amen? We move from milk to meat. We move from 20-minute sermonettes for Christianettes to one hour of biblical exposition, amen? A man met me this morning at the, at the door. This is such an encouragement to me. He goes, when I first started coming, I was like, man, this dude talks way too long. <clears throat> he goes, but I, I'm beginning to understand how to interpret the scriptures of God. Over time, you learn and you gain expositional listening ability. Amen? It takes work. It takes focus. Expositional listening of expositional preaching. Amen? So this church is growing. Your latter works exceed the first. There's maturity here. There's fruit here. Now, the church in Thyatira had grown in what the church at Ephesus was lacking. And what was that, beloved? Love. Ephesus was diminishing in their love. But this church is commended for their ever-growing love, which is the product of faith. Another mark of this congregation was faith, relying upon God to supply their needs. Committed to following Christ, they demonstrated their faith as something that was tangible, something that was real. Martin Luther said this about faith. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. Beloved, salvation in Christ is all about grace. It's nothing but grace. The faith that you have to believe is a gift of God's grace. You didn't come up with this on your own. You can't believe on your own. It's a grace gift. And our faith goes back to the grace that he provided at the cross from beginning to end and the grace in which we, Romans 5 says, we stand in now. We have to know it's God's grace and yield ourselves and submit ourselves to the grace that he provides which causes us and gives us a desire to walk in the ways that he commands because you can only do it by grace. This is not some legalistic endeavor. We live and work from the cross. We don't, we're not trying to find the favor of God in the cross. Amen? If you're saved, you already have it. We move and we walk and we dwell and we fellowship and we worship from the cross. Grace. Grace. So love for God and faith in God leads to service unto God towards the people of God. That's what this church was known for. This is what they were about. This is divine motivation to serve one another. Within the body of Christ, the local church, D.L. Moody said this, quote, the measure of a man is not how many servants he has, but how many servants he serves. <laughs> Do you see yourself as a servant in the church? When you read your English Bible and you come across the word servant or bond servant, almost always that will translate a word known as doulos, which means slave. 
Do you see yourself as a slave of Christ? Not a church hopper, but a diligent servant of Jesus Christ within the local church. You know, you can tell much about a person who professes Christ and how they respond when you treat him as a servant. (laughs) Sorry, brother, I was just treating you as a servant. I was just treating you as a fellow servant. Amen? Now, this love and this faith produced something. Notice. It produced patient endurance. The ability to endure. Patience means long-suffering. It means to suffer long. So we're all going to suffer in this life, amen? Although we rule and reign with Christ in part now, the full consummation of what we have now will be revealed in a new heaven and new earth. That's our hope. That's where we're going, beloved. So we suffer toil now. And faith and love, according to God's grace, produces this endurance. So their faith had kept them faithful to maintain the work in which Christ had called them to in the first place. And patient endurance here, or steadfast endurance, means to, to bear up under stress, to remain strong under pressure. And that's what they were doing. Nevertheless, as is the case with five of the seven churches, he follows up with the word, but. Notice now the condemnation. Verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate. Is the church supposed to tolerate everything? No. You're intolerable. That's right. That's because Jesus is intolerable that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So we see here that it's not all commendation, but actually stern words of warning coming from the Lord to this local assembly. And the rebuke comes in light of their tolerance, which exceeded the tolerance of Jesus. Not unlike Pergamum, remember? They were tolerating what what Jesus hated. I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. The church of Ephesus, you, church of Ephesus, hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans as I also hate. See, this group was listening and tolerating false teaching and immorality within the midst of the church. That's what they were allowing to go on here. The church of Thyatira had love, yes, but not sound doctrine. They had full hearts and empty heads. So according to Jesus, love is not all that the church needs to be healthy, beloved. This isn't the church of the Beatles, right? All you need is love, all you need is love, love, love is all you need. No, that's not all you need. Love for the grace of God in Christ alone produces intolerance for the things that he does not tolerate within the church. What can you do about the world? Nothing. You just preach the truth. We don't allow the practices of the world in the church, and that's the point. We don't mimic what goes on out there. We herald the truth, Jesus Christ. So where Ephesus had full heads and the threat of emptying hearts, Thyatira had full hearts but empty heads. They were not too doctrinally astute here because they were tolerating what Jesus does not tolerate within his church because he paid for them. I paid for you. I bore the wrath of my father. I laid my life down for you. Therefore, this is how you now shall live. You see? Because of grace. And this is the way We want to live. But all of this toleration, all of this condemnation centers around this figure named Jezebel. Now, this is likely not a literal woman named Jezebel. It's kind of like the the harlot of Babylon is not a literal harlot, nor is Babylon a literal city as it's described in the book of Revelation. But the Lord uses this comparison to recall the evil wife of Ahab, the historical Jezebel, who we just read in 1 Kings, led Israel astray, generating compromise and the suffering of the people. 
And Jesus then uses the name Jezebel as a picture of false teaching, idolatry, seduction within his church. That woman Jezebel, Jesus said, who calls herself, she refers to herself as a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Perhaps this woman represents false prophets and those that follow them, i.e. their children. Because this is familiar language to John. In 2 John, in, in 2 John, he writes to the church there, and he writes this, to the elect lady and her children. So there in 2 John, you have something representing a faithful church as well as her children, referring to the individuals that make up that congregation. So this could be false teachers, false prophets, and their little followers within the church of Thyatira. A little leaven what? Leavens the whole lump. What does Jesus say about sin in the church? You purge it out. You purge it out. But whoever this this self-professed prophetess was, she was in like, like manner here inciting sinful lifestyle within the church seducing the saints to worship or commingle worship with the one true God with idols on the outside. Ain't happening. Not happening. And in this case, it was encouraged to pay homage to pagan deities in order to maintain association within the business realm of the trade guild of Thyatira. That what was going on. That's what's happening here. As I said, trade guilds were like belonging to the union. But those who participated in this aspect of economic life would risk a great deal of loss by refusing to join the trade guilds in the false worships of each one of those unions. You wouldn't work. To stand for Christ faithfully and not participate in what went on with your job in worship of these false deities, you don't work. This is where Christians face the challenge every day as well as the temptation to compromise. So attending a guild meeting included common meals dedicated to pagan deities, okay? And the message of the prophetess was this. It's only work. It's a job. Just do it. It has nothing to do with your spirituality. So it's promotion of participation of food sacrifice to idols along with illicit sexual activities that went along with those false idols, you see. So the reasoning behind it was this. Just pay homage. These false false deities, they don't mean anything. After all, it's, it's just part of doing business. Don't be tripping. Church of Thyatira, it's okay. Because see, in this day, politics, business, and religion, along with commerce, were all an interwoven enterprise. They all went together. Therefore, if you opt out of the practices associated with the trade guild and their attachment to some pagan deity, if you didn't jump through the hoops to do business, it was economic loss and social exclusion. It was thought in this day to be economic suicide to reject the minimal requirements for guild membership. You get the picture? This is what's happening. See, beloved, as we face the challenge, as we face the temptation to compromise out there, do we look to the world to support us? Or do we look to the Lord who supplies all of our needs Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what? All these things will be added unto you. He'll supply every need that we have. You know, some people today, they'll say, man, I have to put bread on the table. This is business. I have to serve the man. This is part of it. I have Jesus on Tuesday and Sunday. 
I see the gals on Tuesday and the whole fellowship on Sunday. Hey, I meet with the men. I go to a Bible study on Thursday. I got my Jesus on Sunday. But, you know, during the rest of the week, it's business. Jesus isn't part of our life. He's all of our life. (laughs) He paid for those that are his. So it's quite possible then that this Jezebel was teaching that morality and lifestyle was insignificant as a Christian. Teaching that immorality and compromise for business sake had nothing to do with one's spirituality. That's the physical. What really matters is what's on the inside. How many times have you heard this when you confront someone in love? Hey, man, you don't know what's in my heart. No, but I know you're a bong-token drunk who claims Christ. And in love, I'm confronting you, but you don't know what's in my heart. Well, I hear what you say, and I see what you do, and because you profess the blood of Jesus Christ, I, in love, one-on-one, am confronting you, and I'm calling you because of the blood and the grace of Jesus Christ to turn from that, brother. We do the same thing today. Jesus is less concerned with what we do with the body, this Jezebel would say, because what really matters is what's on the inside. We can detach ourselves from our association on Friday night at the trade guild movement here and the party that goes on over here with this trade guild pagan deity, and then we just separate ourselves from this and we come back and we be little Christian. Jesus said, no, you're tolerating that in the church. James of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, he said this, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality. In other words, he's saying, look, as the gospel goes out and Gentiles are being saved, we're not going to press upon them that they have to adhere to the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision for Israel. They don't have to go become circumcised to be part of God's people. No, they're called to repent and believe. That's it. Because this is very common practice to worship idols along with sexual immorality as part of worshiping those idols. And he said, come out from among them. Repent and believe. So neglecting such instruction was the philosophy that was being peddled within the church of Thyatira by this prophetess. Notice now the lost opportunity in your bulletin. Verse 21. Jesus continues, I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. A couple vital issues here, beloved. There is a time for repentance that God graces people to repent, and he enables them to repent, and then there's a time when the time for repentance is over and you can't repent. And then like Esau, who sought repentance, he couldn't what? He couldn't find it. He was more concerned about the consequences of his sin than he was the one he sinned against, God. This is like John chapter 12. Jesus, in the midst of his public ministries, performing signs, miracles, and wonders. And what do signs do? Point to something greater than themselves, right? And these signs and these miracles pointed to his deity, that he was the incarnate Son of God. But the people wouldn't believe. They believed that he had power. They never denied that. But they refused to believe his deity and his messiahship. And notice what happened in John chapter 12, beginning in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. In order that the word of God spoken by the prophet Isaiah, might be fulfilled. Lord, who's believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they what? Could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes, he's hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, meaning Jesus, and he spoke of him. When Isaiah saw the glory of God, unveiled in Isaiah 6, what he was seeing was a pre-incarnate form of Jesus Christ in his glory. And then God went on to prophesy that to Isaiah, I'm calling you to go preach and preach and preach, and they're not going to hear, they're not going to hear, not going to hear. 
And the full, the total fulfillment of that prophecy is found here in John with the Messiah, Jesus Christ. So what, what's the result? They did not believe, they would not believe, therefore they could not believe. They couldn't repent. He turns them over, Romans 1, to the hardness of their own heart. And if you sit here today and you're not born again in Christ, Jesus said, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Friends, you are accountable for the gospel truth you're hearing today. And you, as you reject and refuse to believe, may come to the place where you can't believe. That's the word of God. So if you're not in Christ today, you're here today by divine appointment. He led you here in his mercy to say, repent. I am the truth. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. No one, no way, I'm it. I am the gospel, which means good news. Notice now the promise, verse 22. This is a negative promise. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw her into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. So on a bed she sinned, and on a bed she'll suffer. Man, do we live in an age of Jezebel within the church. Spiritual fornication, if you will. Spiritual adultery with the world trying to make the church cool and hip and all this, trying to make it like the world, Jesus says, no. No. This takes people away from Christ. This doesn't draw people to Christ. Remember what Jesus said about the gospel? I did not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword to divide a mother from a father, to divide families. (laughs) That's what the gospel does. Now, here in the text, most theologians draw a parallel between this heresy in Thyatira and the system known as Babylon depicted at the end of Revelation. Where the textual and and linguistic similarities between the Lord's word regarding this fictitious woman, Jezebel, and the description of the heart of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 are very similar. Look, for instance, at Revelation 17, and we see that this Jezebel becomes the local expression of the harlot of Babylon. Revelation 17, 1. Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, with the wine of whose sexual immorality to the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. So there then is a connection between this Jezebel and this world system of commerce that's mingled with religion. Referred to as Babylon. Revelation 18.9. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come and the merchants of the earth worth meet, weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, and so on. One commentator says this, This is rich. Materialism, no less than persecution, is the serpent's weapon of war against Christ's church. That's the form of idolatry that we face. That's the form of idolatry that apostate churches have fallen prey to. So the idea in Thyatira is that, look, go ahead and practice. It's only business. This is not a spiritual issue. Just go about it. Perhaps, beloved, you're, you're, you're tempted to compromise on biblical ethics due to your vocation. Perhaps you're tempted to compromise in biblical ethics due to your circle of friends. And if you're anywhere from 15 to mid-20s, you face that. 
It's a temptation there. Where you end up convincing yourself, okay, it's only part of the job. This has no bearing on, bearing on my spirituality, no bearing on my Christianity. Look, I've got to have friends. That is precisely what was going on in the church of Thyatira. Compromise of allegiance to Jesus Christ. Now, should we have allegiance to our employers? We certainly ought to have some. The Bible tells us that. We are to have a certain level of allegiance and commitment to our company, to our workplace, but, but our, to our employer. But when the two collide, beloved, we mustn't sacrifice allegiance to Jesus Christ on the altar of material gain or on the altar of corporate success or acceptance of our friends and or wealth. That's the principle in view. Notice the warning, or the promise continues. Verse 23, And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. Now, I will strike her children dead. Notice why. So that all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart. I search the motives behind the purposes of the church. That's what he's saying. In Acts, when God killed Ananias and Sapphira... What did it do to the outside spectators? The scripture said it put fear into them so that they dared not enter the doorway of the church except those that were converted. Yet in the midst of it, God was adding to his church, how often? Daily. And the church said, man, you do not play in there. You do not mess with this holy God. But he grew his church, converting one sinner at a time becoming part of the body of Christ by grace. By grace. This refers back here, verse 23 does, to Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, I search the heart, I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And he's talking to the church. Jesus is citing Jeremiah to the church of Thyatira. He searches the mind. He searches the emotions, which represents the totality of feelings of feelings and thoughts and desires all meshed together. He reaches into the deepest crevices of the heart and the mind of the church as a whole as he does so individually to each one of us. So there's nothing in our thoughts or our desires that are hidden from the penetrating gaze of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He pierces our facades, doesn't he? He unmasks our disguises, our attitudes, and our thoughts. That's what he does. He purges it out. That's a good thing. It's because he loves us. He loves us. This is what he's doing to Thyatira. So those who follow in this teaching of the Thyatirans will be judged accordingly. As he searches the mind and heart, he goes on to give them each deserving of their compromise and idolatry. That's the point. And those that are heeding the teaching of this woman receive strong rebuke. But there's another but. And this is a really good but. This is a really good encouraging but. Verse 24. But... To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. Hold fast. What some call the deep things of Satan here, or the so-called things of Satan, this is said with sarcasm by our Lord. It was likely being taught here that the only way to confront Satan and the strongholds of Satan was to immerse oneself as a Christian into sin for the sake of experience so that you can truly understand grace. (laughs) Doesn't Paul talk about this in Romans 6? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? What was his answer? Certainly not. So the sin of Jezebel was not only deceptive here, but it was deadly, and only a few within the body discerned where this teaching was leading. So this statement here, the deep things of Satan, could also be an early form of what's known as Gnosticism. 
Now, Gnosticism took on strength um, later on after this time, but Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, meaning knowledge, okay? Now, stay with me here for the next few minutes. So, a Gnostic was one who believed that he had a keener level of secret knowledge, deeper spiritual understanding by way of experience, not the word of God. A secret kind of insight into these deep things. Having, you know, heightened sensitivity to deep spirituality that others don't share. Even today, you can get that in a church if you're not careful. You get a little pack of people within the church, and because of experience, they think they understand the deeper things of God. Not because of the word. They come up with these, their own personalized phrases and all this craziness that leads to this little, this pack, and, you know, their patented code here is, well, we understand the deep things of God experientially. If your experience doesn't line up with the word of God, your experience is not of God. I don't know how many times over the last 15 years I've counseled people, well, this, this, and this, so it must mean this. No, the word says this, therefore your experience is not of God. Look what the word says. Well, yeah, next word, but, you know, I experienced, I don't care what you experienced. The word of God says this, which is contrary to your experience. So your experience, as real as it is, is not of God. How dare you tell me? No, the word says it. And Jesus does not tolerate that experience as being from him. Get it? So the statement, the deep things of Satan, (laughs) is probably in their minds the deep things of God. And Jesus flips it and says, no, these are the deep things of Satan. Remember when he addressed the other church, they said they are Jews, but they're not really Jews, but they're the synagogue of Satan, (laughs) said Jesus. So what he says here is very interesting. Those who haven't fallen fallen into this twisted way of thinking, he gives no further word of instruction. Other than this, remain faithful. Only hold fast what you have, beloved. Be tough. Don't give in. Hang in there. And I say this to you, beloved. If this is you, and you do go to work, and you do profess Christ, and you are mocked, and you are ridiculed, and you haven't received a promotion, and someone else who works less focused than you receive those promotions, and you know that it's suffering for the the namesake of Jesus Christ, be encouraged, beloved. Be encouraged and stand where you are. You remain faithful, just like those in Thyatira. Hold fast what you have. Hang in there. You have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. You're not swept away by this nonsense and this philosophy of the world that's invading the church and actually being allowed in the church. Hang tough. I lay no other burden on you. Just hold fast till I come. He knows the cost of being faithful, beloved. He's there to strengthen you. He's there to encourage you, so hold on. Now, what could have happened here, what may have been the instinctive response of those who were not giving in to this Jezebel would have been to build up legalistic type of lists within the church. Well, we're not going there, so let's just make a list and let's totally refrain from involving ourselves with the world and then you get in this little box known as legalism and you can't go anywhere. Then you have this list on the wall. We're Christians, so we can't, 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 can't. That's lunacy. Who wants to live a life like that? That could be what was beginning to happen here. But what did John say? First John 5, 3. His commands are not what? Burdensome. I lay nothing else on you. Just remain faithful. You don't need to add to my word. <laughs> you don't need to add some list to my word. My word is here. You're justified by faith. Grace alone. Therefore, live in a manner worthy of the calling. And I'll enable you to do it, and I'll provide you the grace to do so. Grace upon grace. So we want our faith to be in grace, not in works. Amen? I don't need to make a list. Just follow my word. You can do all things through Christ too. Strengthens you. Meaning you can do everything he calls you to do by grace and power 
He'll give you the ability. Notice his promise to the faithful, verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule with them, a rod of iron, when the earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This now harkens back to Psalm 2, our opening reading this morning. Which reads, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. His judgment's coming, beloved. His judgment's here. The book of John says, Those, who's condemned already? See, people always read John 3.16, but they don't get to verse 17 and 18. <laughs> There's already a condemned people who don't believe in Christ. They're already condemned. I was one time condemned, but by grace was enabled to believe. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We're preaching the word of God to you without compromise here because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the words of Christ. So those who aren't saved by the grace of God may in his perfect timing come to believe. Listen to Revelation 19.15. From his mouth, Jesus comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of King and Lords of Lords. And that's a blood-stained garment if you go read it. Stained in blood. So the king of kings rules and makes war. That's what kings do. They rule and they make war. And his authority is over the universe, his created realm. He rules all things, beloved. And to those who conquer will share in that authority. In other words, the true believer. Because only a true believer can conquer. That's why the word conquer, remain faithful, is an encouragement to those that are in Christ. Because they're in Christ and they have the ability to conquer. So those who endure to the end shall share in his kingship. They shall share in his rule. They shall share in his reign. But even now in this age, if you're a Christian, you as a believer to some degree share in his kingship. Did you know that? You rule and reign with him now? Having received gospel truth, having been transformed, and now you are gospel professors. You're a professor. Matthew 28, 18. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, said Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of who? All nations. All nations. Why? Because prior to the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, Satan had power over the nations that we cannot even comprehend, beloved. We cannot even comprehend the power he had. That's why Colossians 2.15 says, He, Christ, disarmed the rulers and the authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them. So Satan is shackled, if you will, from having that kind of power and authority over the nations. That's why we've been given the keys to the kingdom to take out and preach the gospel to all nations. You get it? Romans 5.17, If because of one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man, that's Adam. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So death, the ruler of mankind, because of the sin of the first Adam, is contrasted with those in Christ, the second Adam, who are no longer ruled by death, but stand victorious as rulers who reign with Christ on earth now and forevermore. Tell me that you get that. This promise began with the apostles as delegated by Jesus. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. They were given authority to admit entrance into the kingdom of God through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We share the privilege. What a privilege. I can't transform anybody to believe, but the gospel I preach does. To the Holy Spirit who enables them in his perfect timing to believe it and to repent and to receive Jesus Christ. That's why you don't have to worry when people reject the gospel. You don't have to go home and go, man, I can't lead anyone to Jesus. Just preach it. Just preach it. You can't convert anyone. 
To overcomers, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Notice, to such conquerors, what else he promises? Verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Who's the morning star, beloved? Revelation twenty-two sixteen. 16. Jesus. He's the morning star. So the assurance is that by rejecting Jezebel, it will ensure the possession of Jesus Christ. Forsaking the trade guild and the possessions of Thyatira within that city, forget it. You possess Jesus because he possesses you. Whoo! Say whoo! Thank you. So we must often ask ourselves, beloved, I have to ask myself, you must ask yourself, have we allowed our participation within the system of commerce and business to compromise our faith and our hope in the world that is to come, which is a new heaven and a new earth? We partially reign with him now, but we'll fully reign with him forever because he rules. All power and authority is his. He's defeated the enemy. Satan is crushed, awaiting the electric chair, if you will. He's on death row, locked up to be cast into the lake of fire. Oh, he has influence, but he has no power over you. None. Zero. When do we cry out to God most often, beloved, as Christians? Let's all face it. Let's be honest. More times than not, when we face economic ruin, when we face when we face a decline in health, we will call out on God. When we're riding high, when all things are going well, we have plenty of money in the bank, we're healthy as can be, and your grass is green. Like right now, my grass is really green in front of my house. St. <laughs> Augustine grass. I love to, you know, Mark Hutchins comes and he aerates it for me and I get the timing down just right. So like four months, it just looks Beautiful. And you can look at everything and go, man, my life is just so good. And we might thank God now and again, but how often do we pray, Lord, in the midst of all this success and all this money and all this wealth and health that you've given me, I pray for wisdom. I need discernment and I need wisdom to to have a level of integrity in the midst of success so that I don't compromise with Jezebel. So in the midst of our economic success, we must be calling out to God. Amen? Call out for mercy so that we don't compromise our standing in the midst of security and plenty. I'm almost done. So forsaking righteousness for a standing in this present age is the error of Thyatira, and it's the threat of our day in this church. So some Christians today are compromising the truth of the gospel and biblical integrity of his church for a standing or a status or a position in their job. Happens all the time. And American Christianity easily falls prey to compromise. They fall prey to compromise. Compromise of what? For the sake of your best life now? That's what they fall prey to. This is not your best life now if you're a Christian. Did you know that? And their priority is a purpose-driven life rather than a gospel-driven life. Very important. So, as Christians in an Americanized Thyatira, our ethics are just as questionable if we rationalize and say, after all, it's only business. I got to do what I got to do. Got to feed the family. Amen? We are no less called than than these Thyatirans to not compromise for the sake of economic gain, professional status, of losing our guild card. (laughs) So the fear of this day was demotion from being somebody to being a nobody in standing for Christ. They They lost their jobs, not willing to participate in this behavior. So our allegiance must go out first and foremost to the Lord who bought us, amen, by faith, because of grace. As we pass through this life, we must walk cautiously, not sacrificing our testimony on the altar of social, economic, or professional gain. Because, beloved, we live in a day, as I close, 
where you as a school teacher, you'll have to ask yourself, do I keep my union card or do I stand and follow Christ? It's going to come if it hasn't already. Social workers and philanthropic agencies will truly have to ask themselves, do I follow Jesus or do I follow the liberal jargon and the action of the society that I'm attached to? Doctors in the medical field, can I truly follow Jesus and keep my license in practice? They're telling me I have to do this by law, whatever that is. Corporate salesmen must ask, do I remain silent? Now, I've been silent about my faith. I'm a corporate salesman. I travel a lot with the boys. I've remained silent about my faith. And I do this in order to follow my superiors on business trips into gentlemen's clubs or the party boy behavior in order that I can maintain favor. Do I do that or do I begin to declare Jesus Christ? That's the principle. Preachers. must ask, do I boldly proclaim the whole counsel of God? Because when people come out and visit for the first time, they're going to hate the message and they're going to hate me because they've never heard the true gospel. So in order to find favor from them and favor in submitting to modernity and popular approval, I'm going to have to scale down the message and make it friendly. No, not here. But that's what pastors better start asking themselves. So, beloved, may our temporal, earthly citizenship, our temporal status be habitually challenged and realigned. Our thinking, that is, with regard to our eternal status. A new heaven and a new earth. It's been said that a a life of toil and labor will be followed by an eternity of rest. You might be tired from toiling now, beloved, but you're going to rest for eternity. Did you know that? Who is right? So run from the teachings of Jezebel, if this is where you're at today, who taught that mixed allegiance is to know the deep things of God. Jesus said those are the deep things of Satan. Because in the end, mixed allegiance not only leads to death, all that will be visible, don't miss this because I'm done, all that will be visible is the skull and the feet in the palms of her hands. That's it. So, he who sups with the devil had better have, had better have, a long spoon. So who's it going to be? Jesus or Jezebel? Choose this day whom you will serve. And to those of you who are standing faithful now, this is what he says. Remember this. Hold fast. Hang tough. I lay on you no other burden. Amen.